This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Thank you, guys. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you were not with us this past Sunday, we are introducing a new series that's going to take us through Easter Sunday, and it's called Taste and See. When you read the four Gospels and and every message in this series from now through Easter is going to be from one of the four Gospels, we're going to look at different encounters that our Savior has with people. And they either take place in the context of a meal or Jesus is telling a parable that involves a meal. And the goal in this series, um, as I said last week, is not to make you more hungry for lunch, although that might happen, it's to make you more hungry for Jesus, to hunger and thirst more for the Savior. And that's what we're talking about today, satisfying your deepest hunger and thirst. So we're going to begin by a well this morning, John chapter 4, and we're going to look at parts of verses 1 through 42 of John 4, satisfying your deepest hunger and thirst. Let's begin actually with verse 3 of John 4. The Bible says that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, let's skip down to verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, Jesus said to her. I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you see, girl? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you, not, do, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Let's get down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, as this woman encountered the Savior one day in Sychar, we pray that we would encounter the Savior now, and the power of your Spirit through your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tuesday, October 19, 2011, started as a routine day in the little town of Zanesville, Ohio. And it was typical, you know, weekday, kids were going to school, people went to work, just a normal day in an American small town. But What happened on their drive home that day was anything but normal because on their drive, people saw flashing signs warning them with the words, caution, exotic animals, stay in vehicle. The mayhem had started earlier in the day when Terry Thompson, a man who owned a private zoo, took his own life but not before releasing his animals, which included lions and leopards and Bengal tigers and wolves and grizzly bears. It didn't take long for the frantic phone calls to start coming through to 911 operators. It was like the, the wilds of Asia and the jungles of Africa had, had, had invaded this, this small American town, the exotic had invaded the ordinary. Yeah, this, this day starts out as just a routine day in the little Samaritan village of Sychar. And little do these townspeople know that the one whose scripture describes as both the lion and the lamb is going to walk into their town and their lives over the next couple of days are going to be radically and beautifully changed because of this encounter with the Savior. Let's talk about sort of the context. Set the context for what's happening in John 4. Jesus has been in the southern part of Israel, around the vicinity of Jerusalem. He's now moving north, back up into Galilee. Now, almost all Jews, when they moved from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, 
would go all the way over to the east side of the Jordan River, and then they would go up, and then they would cross over back into Galilee after they had passed by Samaria. That was not the most direct route from south to north. The most direct route would be to go right up through the, the, the central part, right up through Samaria, but that's not what most Jews did because of the ancient animosity that existed between Jews and Samaritans. They would go out of their way not to pass through Samaria. But what we're going to see is that Jesus breaks through all of these ancient animosities. In fact, one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells is the parable of the good Samaritan. Well, that was an oxymoron as far as most Jews were concerned. They didn't think of any Samaritans as being good. Jesus told that parable as a challenge to these old ethnic and, and, uh, and, and religious hatreds that existed. And he doesn't go out of his way to go. He goes straight through Samaria. And so he takes this direct route and he finds himself uh, into, uh, in, in the, the village of Sychar, which is now the, the, the city of Nablus uh, in, in the West Bank. Now this story is about an offer. It is about an offer which satisfies what we really long for. It's an offer that satisfies the the, the deepest hunger and thirst that we have. We may think that we're hungry and thirsty for many things, but what we're really hungering and thirsting for is what Jesus offers in this story. Let's look at several aspects of the offer. First of all, we see here the freeness of the offer. Uh, let's look at verse 6. Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is noon. So it's the heat of the day. They've been traveling. It would be a normal thing to be uh, by the well uh, where the water was. But what happens next is anything but normal. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, occasionally our family has played a, a game called Kadu. And it's sort of like charades. Sometimes a person will, will act and you have to act, guess you know, what they're pretending to be. Or sometimes they'll draw a picture and you have to guess what the picture is that they're drawing. Or sometimes you'll turn over an hourglass and you'll have to run frantically through the house to try to get, retrieve items um, before the sand runs to the bottom. And sometimes in this game there'll be a picture, but something slightly off with the picture. You to, and you have to figure out, what's wrong with this picture? Okay, there are several things that are wrong with this picture of Jesus talking with this, this woman by the well. At least five things are wrong with this picture. First of all, what's a Jew doing in Samaria? That doesn't happen. Second, what's a Jew doing talking with a Samaritan? That didn't happen. Third, what's a man doing talking one-on-one to a woman? That didn't happen. Fourth, what's a religious Jewish man doing talking with a Samaritan woman? That didn't happen. And fifth, 
This is not just any woman. This is a notorious woman. This is a woman who, because of her sexual behavior, has become an outcast in her town. That's why she comes to the well alone. Women didn't go to the well alone in towns like this. They went with the other women. They went with their friends. But she doesn't have any friends. She's an outcast because of, of, the, of her, her sexual behavior. Now, what we're going to see here is something that Jesus says, and he demonstrates it time and time again. He says it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's who? The sick. And what we're going to see in this series as Jesus encounters people, whether they have a, whether, no matter what their disease is, whether it's a physical disease like leprosy, or whether it's the moral disease of sin, what we're going to see is that when Jesus gets in proximity of a disease, it's not Jesus who's in danger of being infected. No, when Jesus Christ gets in proximity of a disease, it's the disease that's in trouble, not Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't avoid Samaria. He doesn't avoid this woman. He begins to minister to her, and he begins to tell her about a gift. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now listen, what distinguishes a gift? It's unearned. It's free. That's God's salvation. That's what God's rescue is is like. It's a gift. Paul says in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That is in Christ Jesus. He says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now listen, what disqualifies you from receiving a gift? Pride. Pride. Not humbling yourself to receive it. What's this woman going to do? Is pride going to keep her from receiving the freeness of this offer, this gift? So we see the freeness of the offer. Second, we see the greatness of the offer in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." The human body cannot function without water. We're about 50% water our bodies, and we we will be in agony if we're deprived of it. In the new film Unbroken there's a scene in which the, the, the men have been floating around in the Pacific and, and, and a storm uh, comes and they, they, just, they, they lean back and open their mouths just to receive water. If you're trying to diet for the new year, you know, the truth of the matter is that actually our bodies can go a fair amount of days, actually many days, without a bite to eat if we have access to water. But they can't go long at all without water. They will absolutely shut down. And what Jesus is saying here is that what I'm offering to you is just as necessary for spiritual life as H2O is for physical life. You will die without this. And I'm offering it to you, and I'm offering it to you not only as a gift, 
But I'm offering you a spring. Not just a one-time offer, but a spring that will continue to, to just to, to well up within you. You see, um, this is something that's going to replenish. One of the reasons that we have trouble keeping New Year's resolutions is because we try to change the external without dealing with the internal. We try to change behavior without dealing with the soul, which is the source of behavior. And what Jesus is saying here when he says, I'll I'll, I'll create in you a spring, is that I'm going to do an inside job on you. I can change you from the inside out. So this becomes a spring in you. But like most people, she's trying to find satisfaction where it will never be found. This is why she's going from relationship to relationship, from man to man. Because it's an attempt to find a satisfaction that will not be found in that source. It will not be found in money. It will not be found in substances. It will not be found in power or prestige or anything else. You will end up empty. And this is really what the essence of of, of sin is. Jeremiah 2.13 God says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This explains her behavior. This this explains why we always... uh, It's sin. This is it. Sin is always an attempt to satisfy ourselves from a, from a broken cistern, from a toxic stream. And in order to be satisfied, we've got to turn from that and turn to the only one who will satisfy. Now, in verse 15, uh, she says here, look in your, look in your, in your text, in your Bible, uh, beginning with verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, at first, it seems like that Jesus is sort of changing the subject. It seems like she's saying... Give me this living water, and Jesus says, let's talk about your sex life. (laughs) But that's really not what's happening. He's not really changing the subject at all. And he's not being harsh with her. He's actually being very tender and loving with her. But see, Jesus is talking about something that will satisfy. He's talking about living water. And and, and if you drink this, you're going to find satisfaction. But see... She's got a blind spot in her life. And he's got to help her see the blind spot. He's got to help her see that this is what, what I'm talking about is what you've been trying to find in men. How's that working for you? The satisfaction that we seek, whether it's in, you know, other people or relationships or alcohol or drugs or money or shopping or things or food or whatever it is, okay, that we, that we take to try to, to make ourselves feel better and satisfied. It's not going to work. 
See, Jesus has to help her understand this. In order to drink from the stream of living water, she has to turn from the broken, empty cistern that she's been trying to drink from. It's called repentance. Are there broken cisterns, empty cisterns that can hold no water that you've been trying to drink from? Have you been trying to to find satisfaction in your life from things that will never satisfy? What are the things that you need to turn from? What are the the, the stream, the, the broken, empty cisterns, the toxic streams that you need to turn from so that you can turn to a fountain of living water and drink. You know, in order to turn to this life-giving fountain, it necessarily involves turning away from whatever you've been trying to drink from. The greatness of the offer. Third, we see something here about the singleness of the offer. Jesus actually doesn't change the subject at all, but she tries to change the subject at one point. He begins to talk about um, that she's been jumping from relationship to relationship. And she says, let's talk about theology. <laughs> let's, talk about, um, let's, talk, uh, let's talk about place temples and places of worship. And then she says, well, you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll settle all this. And notice what uh, Jesus says to her in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. She says, Messiah's coming. It's going to explain all this. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. See, Jesus brings her back to himself. He says, the issue is me. It's what you're going to do with me. He says, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, listen, what this tells us is that Jesus Christ is either the way or he is no way. But he cannot be a way. He cannot be a way. This offer is single. Okay? Either Jesus Christ is no way to God or he is the way to God. But he cannot be a way to God. That won't work. And people say, well, you know, you Christians are really narrow-minded. To say something like that, first of all, it's not us saying it's Jesus, right? But second, the next time that somebody says that to you, if they say it's narrow to talk about Jesus as the only way, t- tell them this. Imagine that a group of doctors believe that they found the cure for cancer. They believe they found a breakthrough that's going to solve this. And so they publish their findings in a medical journal. Right? I mean, how could they not? They, they publish what they believe to be true. They believe this to be the cure for cancer. They publish this for the world to see. Now, there are a couple of ways that people can react to that. You can, you, can, you can believe what they're writing, or you can disbelieve, you can be skeptical about it, and, and plenty of people would react those ways, and those are kind of normal reactions that people would have. What would not be a normal reaction if these doctors publish what they believe to be the cure for cancer? What would not be normal is for people to say, those doctors are being narrow-minded to say that. Listen, if you believe that you found a cure for cancer and you don't publish that... You don't shout that from the housetops? I mean, how, how cruel would you have to be to hide information like that? 
see, we, we have been given news that heals and heals ultimately. How can we hide that? See, this, this encounter really tells us a lot about personal evangelism. It tells us a lot about some, some principles that we need to keep in mind in sharing the gospel with other people. I, wanna, I want us to look at, uh, at, at several of them. First of all, don't avoid sharing the gospel with people you perceive as hard to reach. If anybody was going to be perceived as hard to reach, it would have been a woman like this. She's a Samaritan. I mean, she, her life's a, a mess and all of that. You know, don't avoid sharing with people that you perceive as hard to reach. After all, what makes you think that you were so easy to reach? Let me tell you something. Before you were a Christian, your heart was dead, just like everybody else's. Ephesians 2 says we're all dead in trespasses and sins before we're born again. We got saved because the Holy Spirit did resurrection in our lives. He took our dead heart and quickened it. Made it new. Made it alive. We have a God who specializes in resurrection. But He does that through the proclamation of the gospel. Do you hear me? God raises people from death to life as we share the gospel. And now is the time to do it. Because what does Jesus say here in verse 35? Do not say, yet there, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. When it comes to sharing the gospel with people, do not say, well, now is not the time. It very much is the time. Do not say, I'm not the one to do it. You very much are the one to do it. A lot of times in farming, now the harvest will be outsourced. So the people who do the planting don't necessarily uh, do the harvesting. But listen, when it comes to this harvest Jesus is talking about, this harvest cannot be outsourced to other people. We cannot outsource what Jesus has entrusted to us. He's put the gospel in our hands. He says the, the fields are widened to harvest. We're called to go and share. And don't avoid sharing with people you perceive as hard to reach. Second, part of getting spiritually healthy is sharing with others. You know, we talk about uh, for 2015, I hope that you know, you're going to be in the Word of God and reading the Word of God and things like that and, <clears throat> and working on being consistent with your prayer life. and a, a Very vital. Vital, all of it. Vital to spiritual health. Let me tell you something else that's vital. Involving yourself in ministry, sharing the gospel with people, telling the good news to people. What does Jesus say in verses 31 and 32? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the conversation he's just had with this woman. He says, this is food. This is nourishment to me. To, to, to share what I've just shared with this woman. You know, Jesus calls us to be his disciples. And he tells us what? He says, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. If you're not, really, if you're not fishing for people, how closely are you following Jesus? And if you're not following Jesus closely, how spiritually healthy are you? See, Jesus says, this is, this is food. This is food. When you give out 
telling the gospel, you know, doing ministry, loving on people, when you give out, giving of our, our, our resources, okay, all of that, when you flow out, that's, that's food, and it's not like dessert, which is optional. Jesus says, this is my nourishment. This is my nutrition to, to, be, to be sharing, to be loving on people, helping people, ministering to people. Listen, just, just love the people in your life. Just love them and try to help them. And, and part of trying to just love people and help people, just a normal part of your life is going to be sharing the good news, which is what every person ultimately needs. Now, when you do that, as you begin to do that as a lifestyle, no matter how people respond, whether they respond immediately to the gospel or not, you get the blessing. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You're going to receive nourishment because as you share the Spirit, it's going to be working in your life. And so part of becoming spiritually healthy is sharing the gospel with others. Uh, Third, point to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Sometimes we say, I don't don't know enough. I don't know enough Bible. don't know enough enough theology. I promise you, every person in this room knows more than this Samaritan woman knew. More Bible, more gospel than she knew. And look at how God used her. She doesn't make it complicated. What What does she say? She just says, come see a man. Come see a man. Come see a man. Come. She points people to the Savior. I mean, just point people to the Savior. Because that's where the power is. Now, part of this conversation that we're going to circle back to now is this conversation about places of worship. You know, Samaritans, they had a t- their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And, of course, the Jews' temple was in Jerusalem. So at one point in the conversation, she, she wants to talk about temples. She says, oh, you know, you Jews say some, uh, Jerusalem is the place where uh, we should worship and offer our sacrifices in the temple. And we Samaritans believe it's Mount Gerizim uh, here in, the, in Samaria where we, where we, that's our temple. That's where we offer our sacrifices. And then Jesus just shifts the paradigm, doesn't he? And Jesus says, there's coming a time when the issue is not going to be whether you do it in Jerusalem or whether you do it on Mount Gerizim. Since there's come a time when my people are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be about the, of the physical location of a temple in a, in a certain city, one city or the other. You know why? What's he talking about? Well, ultimately he's talking about when the spirit is poured out and Jesus is raised from the dead... And we as the church, really, we, we, we become like the temple of the living God. And part of what he's talking about is the fact that what happened in those temples in Jerusalem and on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshipped, what they do there? They offered sacrifices, right? Sacrifices of, of dead animals were offered in those temples. And, and the point was to impress Upon people that, you know what, sin costs something. Sin costs a life. But none of those sacrifices could really take away sins, right? They couldn't take away sins. The sacrifices in those temples only pointed, pointed to something beyond them. They pointed to 
the Lamb of God who really does take away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. And he did that. This Lamb did that by allowing himself to become the sacrifice. By being slaughtered on a cross. And ironically, one of the things that Jesus says as he's hanging on the cross, one of the famous sayings from the cross, is what? I thirst. And Jesus was not just talking about physical thirst. He was talking about the fact that our sins had been laid upon him. That he was experiencing ultimate thirst. That he was experiencing thirst so that we could never have to be thirsty again. He was experiencing ultimate thirst so that you and I can have the opportunity to drink living water. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you have what alone can satisfy Forgive us for seeking it in other sources and other things, in sin, which can never satisfy. Lord, would you help us to turn from empty, broken cisterns, toxic streams that we've been trying to drink from, turn to you and drink from that fountain of living water which alone can satisfy the deepest longings, the deepest needs in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your Son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. 
I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.